talk tonight is to look at that. It's to look at sin and maybe particular, particularly sexual sin in our lives and to say, how do we bring ourselves, not only in our sexual sinfulness, but I would say more fundamentally in our sexual woundedness, in our sexual disconnectedness, how do we bring ourselves before the grace of Jesus Christ in the sacraments? And it's more than just, well, I go to confession. Okay, <laughs> but what does that mean? Why are we going? Why do we do it? What does confession call us to? Could there even be times that going to a sacrament, perhaps that we, for our part, although the sacraments are always good, perhaps we are taking it for granted or misusing that sacrament when the Lord gives it to us for other reasons. So those are some of the things we're going to explore tonight. I'm going to draw heavily on three sources. Uh, two priests and things they wrote that I thought were very helpful and the catechism of the Catholic Church. The first priest, his name is, and you can write it down if you want the source, is T Father Thomas Loya, Father Thomas Loya, L-O-Y-A. And he writes a blog in the Clean Heart online blog that's put out, I think, through Covenant Eyes, Father Thomas Loya. And another priest, Father Sean Kilk, I, I don't know exactly how to say his last name, Kilkalwi, I think is how you say his last name, Kilkalwi, I think it's K-I-L-C-A-W-L-E-Y. And he wrote a very interesting set of articles, and the, the title itself is somewhat provocative. He says, why confession isn't helping your porn problem? It's very interesting, and I'm going to talk about that article a little bit. I think he's right on, actually, in many cases. It's a two-part article. And then the catechism of the Catholic Church I'm going to use to really talk about what is going on with sexual sin in our life, but more importantly, what is the good news? What is the grace that God wants to provide to us? I'm going to be speaking to things that maybe many of us in this room deal with. Perhaps it's pornography, perhaps it's masturbation, perhaps it's sexual sin with someone else. Things that we deal with in our life, perhaps it's sexual thoughts, things that we're dealing with. And I think what I will share will apply to some things more than other, others, but hopefully it connects. So I want to make a couple distinctions. First, looking at sort of the side of sexual sin. So it's going to be kind of looking at that and then bringing in the grace and where those two meet. So a couple generational realities that we really need to be aware of. First of all, we look today at the, the power of media, and I'm not anti-media in any way, but the truth is that there's some generational realities that affect our proclivity to sexual sin. The exposure time that you have as a generation is much younger than when I was in college in 1996. <laughs> the exposure time, many young, young people from the, between the ages of eight and 10 are first exposed to pornography. So you think about it, if you come as a freshman and you're 18, sometimes there are people, not everyone, but sometimes where they have been exposed to pornography for eight to 10 years. They have had this pervasive influence in their life more or less. What is being seen in terms of material online is much more explicit, of course, than the past. And it's much more violent. And there's a reality of escalation. And the term escalation in a psychological sense means when you consume something, you need more 
to reach a certain level of satisfaction. You develop a tolerance. So if you consume a certain amount of pornography and you consistently consume it, you need more and more. You need more violence, you need more explicit. You following me? It's kind of a psychological reality, which is very sad. One of the questions that Father um, Kilcalwi asks is, he said a, a question we can ask ourselves if we struggle with pornography is, do you watch pornography now that you once thought to be repulsive? If you could say yes to that, then probably your tolerance has gotten much higher. You're at a level that you need more of it to reach the same level of chemical reaction and release in you. Tolerance is an indicator of addiction. And I'll get into that a little bit later. I'm not saying everyone who watches pornography is an addict, but there are several types of addictions that I think are very applicable here at Franciscan University in my own pastoral experience. A second reality, and that is tonight's talk is, is going to hopefully steer the path between two extremes that are unhealthy. One is laxity, and I'm guessing that's less of a problem here. <laughs> laxity would be you just don't really see it as sinful. You don't have an issue with it. It's probably a predominant trait of our hookup culture. There's a laxity, unfortunately. But the other side of it that there may be more of a focus on here is either a misunderstanding of our sexuality, a woundedness, or sometimes a scrupulosity. And I'll talk about that in my own experience of struggling with my own body image as a man, rejecting my own body and recognizing that that was just as bad as acting out. <laughs> because it led into other problems in my life and other experiences. I think the middle ground, maybe middle ground isn't the best word, but I think the place of virtue is vigilance, contrition, and self-compassion. We need all of those. Vigilance, contrition, and self-compassion. So when we fall into any particular sin, hopefully we're, we're vigilant or we're, we're, we're watching, we're mindful, our conscience is informed and sharpened. We have contrition. We feel a contrition, even, even if it's not perfect. But there also has to be a certain level of self-compassion. <laughs> maybe we're growing. <laughs> and maybe we're moving towards the Lord. And we need to recognize that and, and claim the victories that the Lord is working in our life. Another thing that we need to look at is we need to look at that there are objectively sinful acts in our life. A lot of the things we talk about, masturba masturbation, pornography, sexual intercourse with someone else outside of marriage, it's objectively sinful. But there is another element of it, and that is the culpability. And this is the teaching of the church that the teaching of the church in terms of culpability is very clear that the culpability can differ depending on the gravity of the action. This is moral theology, the freedom that the person has and the knowledge. So say you didn't know a particular act was sinful that affects the morality or the moral value of that act, whether it's a venial sin or a mortal sin. And that's important to be aware of. An example of this that I want to speak about is this. This Father Loya said this, and I'm going to quote him directly because I think it's helpful. He says, while an action can be objectively sinful, 
The church takes into consideration the circumstances relative to the action, which figures into the degree of culpability for the sin. This is especially the case in sexual sins like consuming pornography and masturbating. Father Loya continues, lustful thoughts or glances occur within a split second. Given these circumstances, a man or woman who slips into these momentary thoughts of lust should ask forgiveness from God, but should not refrain from receiving Holy Communion. This sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is essential to our spiritual growth. It also has the property of the forgiveness of sins. By this, we do not mean that the Eucharist is a replacement for confession, especially in the case of more serious sins, but there is a property of forgiveness of sins in the Eucharist. When sin is habitual and of a more intended and serious nature, the person should not receive Holy Communion unless they went to confession. And we'll talk about that last point. For some of you, that might be hard to hear. You might think, oh, Father, is that really the teaching of the church? That is the teaching of the church. And let me give you a practical example. So you walk around campus and you are, I'll just say a man because I'm a man. (laughs) You are a young man and you see one of these beautiful ladies on campus. And for whatever reason, the thought of that beautiful woman's beauty, all of a sudden something pops into your head, which is not the best vision of that woman's beauty. But you become aware of that thought and you actually try to pray. You give yourself to the Lord. You surrender yourself to the Lord. You offer yourself. Are you in sin at that moment? No. Things pop in our heads all the time. (laughs) You became aware of it. You placed yourself before the Lord in his mercy. Now here's very different. The same scenario happens. You become aware of this thought. You entertain it. You indulge it. You go with it. You make no resistance to resist it. Maybe you even bring it up later. That's very different. There are times where we have to recognize that and recognize the Lord working in our life. Now there are times where we just don't know. And we think, I don't know. Maybe it was lustful. Maybe it wasn't lustful. And I often say as a confessor, well, you can bring that to confession. Sure, place it before the Lord or ask the confessor. But at the same time, if you are in doubt a true sincere doubt, then it's very difficult to be in mortal sin. If your conscience is informed and you are looking at that action, the Lord knows your heart. He knows your desires. So I think we have to be really aware of that, that our actions can be objectively sinful, but the culpability can be mitigated in many situations. Are you with me so far? they're tough situations. So I just want to say a little bit more about addiction. Now, when we think of addicts, we think of someone else, right? We don't always think of ourselves. But I think that addiction is more common than we might think. And there's a psychologist by the name of Douglas Weiss. And he speaks of six types of addicts. And I want to speak of three of them that I think are helpful to share with you about. The first addict is the biological addict. 
This is the person who grew up in a relatively stable home, had good relationships, and no significant trauma. Hopefully that's some people here. But they discovered sexual sin at some age, probably an early age, and it became a habit because sexual sin is insidious. Pornography is insidious. And it's very easy once you taste the fruit to want more. This person, this biological addict, we might call them, um, often discover pornography, masturbation, sexual acting out another way in their teen years. The habit gets ingrained over time and it may or may not develop into a full-fledged addiction. This is the kind of person, Father Sean Kilcalwe says, through Doug Weiss, who says that as a priest, how I would work with them is I would encourage them to have a more structured spiritual life. I would encourage them to have filters, and I do this a lot if you come to me for confession. Well, are you, if it's your phone, what are you doing with your phone? <laughs> Can you block some things? Should you turn your phone off at night? Maybe you don't need your phone. <laughs> you know, like, like, here, look at it. What are you going to do with this, you know? So this is the kind of person, this sort of biological addict, is the person that probably when I was in high school, most people, many or many people addicted to sexual sins, serious sexual sins, would fall into that category if it was at an addictive level. There's a second level. This is the psychological addict. This is how they get described. He or she uses pornography or practices other sexual sins in order to avoid emotions. Sometimes it is used specifically to alter a mood or to not feel anything at all by numbing out. This person may be triggered not only by sexually explicit materials, but also by feeling unaffirmed, experiencing a fight with your parents or a roommate, or even when things are relatively okay. How does the priest, how does the counselor respond to this psychological addict? Well, there needs to be behavioral change. But in most cases, this person is going to need some sort of counseling outside of confession. Confession is the forgiveness of sins. But what needs to be addressed is the underlying difficulties that are going on in this person's life. The third kind of addict is the trauma-based addiction. This person uses porn as a way of reenacting trauma that they have experienced or other sexual behaviors. And that might seem crazy that I just said that, but if you think about it, it makes sense. And this is what he says, and I think he's right. He said, the girl who watches violent porn may do so because she has been the victim of sexual violence in her past. The different scenario genres available on pornographic websites is an indicator that more and more people may be looking to reenact or address past traumatic events in their lives. There is porn that includes babysitters, stepmoms, step-siblings, teachers, and students. And this is sad, but the very porn industry is playing on the trauma that people have experienced because when people are trying to work through their trauma on their own, they can't do it and they find ways that are not helpful. Father Kilcalwe says, if there is past trauma or any kind of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, the person will likely not find freedom unless he or she seeks counseling from a trained professional who is experienced in working with sexual addiction and sexual trauma. Weiss, 
the, the psychologist who came up with these addictions says he believes that today less than 15% of addicts are merely biological ones, the first ones. And this is my thesis. My thesis is that while maybe it's not the level of addiction that many of our university community, including students, professors, even friars at times, have had significant traumas in their life or significant psychological experiences. And sometimes it's more than just we got into a habit. Make sense? It's that we're playing into some things that God wants to do healing in. The bad news, if you want to say it's bad news, is in some ways, confession won't cure the problem. And I want to say this carefully. The sacrament of reconciliation is always good and always a gift. But the sacrament of reconciliation is to provide you the grace to do the work outside of confession that you need to do in order to be free. And it's a work that not just you and I do, it's a work of dependence on grace. It's the work of developing a prayer life. It's the work of forming virtue, being formed in virtue by the Lord. It's the work of community. That's why we stress household so much. Christian community, accountability, brothers and sisters working together. More and more of us are growing up with the kind of trauma that people didn't have in the past. And so more and more of us need particular help and support in our lives. Sometimes people even feel stuck in the confessional, Father Kilcawi says. What do I mean by that? He says they come to confession, and maybe you've experienced this, time and time again, and they're sincere, and they confess their sexual sin, but they do not see growth in their lives. They go back into the sin. And what Father Kilcawi says is he says, this happens because of two things. First, there is a psychological wound or trauma that needs to be addressed outside of confession that is not being addressed. <laughs> you are going to confession because, and we, I've, I've said this before, confession's not a car wash. Your car is dirty. You go to confession. You leave. You go back to the same puddle, mud puddle. You drive through it. You come to confession. You're not saying, hmm, maybe I need to find a way to not go back to that mud puddle and then still come back to confession because you're always going to get some mud on you. A second reason, he says, is going to confession and receiving absolution has become part of an addiction cycle. Now, this is very subtle, and this is going to sound a little strange, and some people might fight me on this, but I think it makes sense in my years as a friar, a priest, and a confessor. What happens is you have a cycle. Just listen to see if this sounds familiar to you. You have a vulnerable time. This is that time when you're more susceptible to sexually acting out. It could be the anniversary date of a traumatic event, like the death of a parent or some other kind of trauma. It could be you just didn't have enough sleep. You've heard the acronym HALT, maybe? Halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It could be one of those four or those four together. It makes you more susceptible to sin. There's another acronym that he shared. It's called BLASTED. It stands for bored, lonely, agitated, stressed, tired. Now, we're human beings. We're not going to 
We're not going to miss the, we're, we're all going to experience these things. But what happens is the vulnerable time makes a person more likely to be affected by triggers. Triggers are events, situations, or interactions that have been paired habitually in us to sexually acting out. <laughs> We've gotten used to responding to those different elements in our life, and we feel a certain amount of relief when we act out in these ways. But then immediately afterwards, we feel a great amount of shame. We have triggers. After the trigger, there can be an emotional pull toward acting out. So we feel tempted, right? And a physiological, even in our bodies, sort of arousal may begin. We feel tempted to do something. Then the person has a thought. They might think about acting out. Or the person might say, I hope I don't act out. <laughs> I don't want to do this. But then what happens, it's interesting, and this is sort of biochemical for you who are in the sciences out there. Next comes the flood of chemicals that get the brain ready and focused for sexual behaviors. Dopamine is released in anticipation of acting out. And dopamine actually helps the brain to focus on following through on what the brain thinks it needs. Then there's a second thought. In theological language, we call it the sin of presumption. Someone saying, well, I guess I can start again tomorrow. This will be the last time. Or I've already gone down this path. I might as well finish what I'm doing. Then we do the behavior. Then we feel remorse. Now the person feels great guilt, shame, and remorse. Okay, I think this is a true cycle. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen this in people's life. So how does this relate to reconciliation? Well, what happens is this plays out, and it happens in our life. And what happens is the person goes to confession at the end of this process because they feel such shame and such guilt. But the confession itself plays into the actual behavior. The confession itself plays into the actual behavior because the person in their shame and remorse, they go to confession, they feel better, but they don't actually address the issues that happened. And it's not that it's bad that they had a desire to go to confession, but they wanted so much, and it's good, to be able to receive the sacrament of the Eucharist on Sunday, to be able to go to Mass, but then the ritual of confession, a good Catholic ritual sacrament, has become part of the cycle. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Do we just not go to confession? Well, Father Kilcalwi says, we need to do something else alongside it. He says, we need to do something different. If you are a person you are working with, identify with this cycle, there are a couple of things you can do. He says, it's important that along with going to confession that we do what's called non-sacramental confession. Find a priest, mentor, parent, good friend to talk about your struggle with pornography and masturbation. Eventually, you will tell your story in its entirety, and this will help you to be more honest with yourself and with others. 
Many of the friars, I know it, I know my brothers, when they give a penance for sexual sin, we often say, are you talking to someone outside of confession about this? It's so essential and so necessary. Because the sacrament, while we can talk to you about this, we, we need people looking at the root things outside of the sacrament so that they, not only so that they can come to the sacrament to receive forgiveness primarily, but so that there's not a hyper focus on sexual sin at the expense of other sins in life. It's very important to see the fullness. So Father, Father Kilcalwe says that. He says for some people, they need to get the ritual out of your ritual. So what they mean, he means by that is sometimes some people will need to go to confession more often, not just when they fall into sexual sin, to recognize, to make a confession about other things in their life. Does that make sense? So it breaks the cycle. Other people who are very scrupulous, and you would have to talk to someone, may need to wait to go to confession. And they may need to abstain from the Eucharist, or they may need to talk to someone to clarify whether they are actually in mortal sin itself. In my sense, as a confessor, in many ways, is that there are many people who are bound up in addictive behaviors. And the grace of the sacrament of confession can help you as it is complemented by other growth in your life. So I'm not sure if I spoke that that well, but I encourage you to go to these articles, especially the second one, because I think there's a lot of wisdom in them in life. Now, I want to speak a little bit about sacramental grace, because this is the good news. This is the news that this is what it's all about. How do we understand the sacraments and the grace that flows from the sacraments? We want to have a view of the sacraments that never, ever takes them for granted. We want to have a view that is not utilitarian, that is not functional. You know, this is, that is, that is not just a part of acting out or making ourselves feel better, but that is truly an encounter with Jesus. Now, if I had a quarter for every time someone came up to me and said, Father, can I have a quick confession? Now, I know the intention behind that is not bad, but I want to say, would you say to your doctor, can I have a quick, you know, just a five-minute doctor's appointment? You would never say that because you respect the integrity of that encounter together. You recognize that it's something that can't be rushed. Now, the friars hear a lot of confessions. We have to be expedient. Hopefully, we're not rushing you out. But we sometimes have to say, okay, we need to kind of close this up. <laughs> but we, we also recognize every sacrament Every sacrament, not just reconciliation, is an encounter with Jesus Christ. And there's nothing trivial about it. And that word quick kind of seems trivial to me. You know what I mean? Another example, let's say I'm vested in my chasuble, ready to celebrate the four o'clock mass. And you come up to me at 3.55 p.m. And you say, Father, can I go to confession? I'm going to say no. Because right at that moment as a priest, I'm preparing to celebrate the Mass. I'm preparing to preach the Word of God and to proclaim it. 
And that is my responsibility. And you might have a good intention because you want to go to communion and receive the sacrament, but you have to say, this is not going to happen right now. I'm going to go to Mass. I'm going to make a good act of contrition and make a spiritual communion if I need to. And then I will reach out to Father and make an appointment. Or I will go to the one of the, what we figured out tonight, 45 hours of confession time available every week on campus. So I don't say that to be harsh, but I use it as an example just to say, not just here, this happens everywhere. The sacraments are a gift. Let us never take them for granted. Baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, the sacraments of initiation, reconciliation and anointing of the sick, the sacrament of healing, and the, the sacraments at the service of communion and mission of the faithful, holy orders and matrimony. But let's talk about the Eucharist. And this is really beautiful. I want to read a little passage for you. Sorry, I thought I marked it. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people of God by which the church is kept in being. Whoa. It's like the church is kept in being by the Eucharist. And we encounter the Lord in the Eucharist. The power of the Eucharist. The Eucharist wipes away venial sins. Did you know that? The Eucharist forgives venial sins. That's why there's a penitential act in the Mass. The Eucharist preserves us. This is Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1395. The Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. It's important that we're receiving the very life of God in us. It's so important. In fact, receiving the Eucharist disposes us to the life of God. It disposes us to the grace of God. I need to read you one more thing. The more we share the life of Christ and progress in his friendship, the more difficult it is to break away from him by mortal sin. The Eucharist is not ordered to the forgiveness of mortal sins that is proper to the sacrament of reconciliation. The Eucharist is properly the sacrament of those who are in full communion with the church. So in all that I am saying, we do have to make a very good examination of conscience, of consciousness of our worthiness to receive the Eucharist. But we also have to recognize what's going on in our life and see what the Lord is doing. And I think it's important to remember that the Eucharist strengthens our bond of charity with Christ. The Eucharist is not a merit badge. <laughs> we don't earn it because we're holy. It's a gift. It's grace. It's food given to us for the journey of following the Lord. And it's food given to sinners so that we can follow the Lord and follow his life. The sacrament of reconciliation is an encounter with the unseen father. In the seen Christ, his priest, the altar Christus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the call to conversion and repentance must first be interior. 
I'm going to close up soon because I want to make sure we have time for questions. But this, this, kind of, this article of catechism kind of rocked my world. This is 1431. Interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an, ending, an end of sin, a turning away from evil with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. At the same time, it entails the desire and resolution to change one's life with hope in God's mercy and trust in the help of his grace. This conversion of heart is accompanied by a salutary pain and sadness, which the fathers called anami cruciatus, meaning in Latin, affliction of spirit and compunctio cordis, repentance of heart. So the first thing that we should have, God willing, by God's grace, even before we go to confession, is this affliction of spirit and this repentance of heart. The human heart, this is 1432, is heavy and hardened. God must give man a new heart. Conversion is, first of all, a work of the grace of God who makes our hearts return to him. God gives us the strength to begin anew. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin and begins to fear offending God by sin and being separated from him. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. Now, this is a little spiritually counterintuitive. We kind of think to ourselves that we need to get over sin and then we will be holy and loved. And actually, I think the catechism is saying the opposite. It's saying we need to receive God's love in our sinfulness in order to get over sin. We need to receive the love of the Lord. The love that the Lord had for the woman caught in adultery. The love that he has for us. The love for our woundedness. And I just want to close tonight by saying, in my own journey, I had to experience this. Even when I was discerning my life as a TOR Franciscan, I actually went on a 30-day retreat. And be careful if you do that, it's kind of, kind of wild. 30-day <laughs> silent spiritual exercises retreat. I got about a week and a half in. It was right before I was going to make my lifetime profession as a Franciscan. This was 2004. And I went into this vocational crisis. And I didn't know what was going on, but I realized I'm not ready for this. Something's not right in my own heart. And I said, Lord, what's going on? Through a lot of tears. I was with Father Nathan. He was on the same retreat. It was so good. He's so compassionate. He was with me as I was going through a rough time. And the Lord revealed to me that he needed to do some healing in my heart from some woundedness in my life. And that woundedness had come in high school. And that woundedness had been when a bunch of guys who were my friends, because people in high school are kind of stupid sometimes, they were just saying stupid things to me, like guys do. And they were saying not only stupid things, but things that were very hurtful. And things that were references to my own sexuality. And I felt belittled. I felt embarrassed. I felt less of a man than I should be. But you know, when you're in high school and people do stuff like that, you shrug it off, you pretend you're tough, you curse back at them, you punch somebody, 
You don't admit that you're sensitive and you're kind of internalizing this. All these years, I was in high school. This happened when I was 15 years old. And in 2004, I'm 30 years old. And I had, and this comes up in my heart. And the way it manifested itself was I didn't believe that I was truly good. I didn't believe that I was enough. And if I couldn't believe that I was good, and if I couldn't believe that I was enough, I didn't feel like I could become a friar. I didn't feel like I could take this step for the rest of my life. So what did I do? I called Father Nick. If any of you know Father Nick, he's in Austria. He's awesome. He's like, what's up? <laughs> and I said, Father Nick, I can't profess my solemn vows. Okay, what's going on? And I told him. And in a very beautiful set of circumstances, rather than go back to seminary, I was sent here for the year. I worked with households, but really I was here to do some counseling and to try to get my life together. I met with a holy priest who was also a counselor. And I'll never forget the day that he looked at me, this priest, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, he said, Jonathan, there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. You know, I'm made in the image and likeness of God. He looked at me again. He had this deep voice and this big beard. And he said, there's nothing wrong with you. And it was like Christ was speaking to my heart. It was like Jesus was speaking to me. And I realized at that moment that actually what was wrong with me was I thought something was wrong with me. <laughs> that, that that was a lie, what I had been told. That I was enough of a man. That I was adequate that my identity was not based on my sexual woundedness from the past, from the names I had been called. And that a lot of some of the acting out that I had done in my own way that had led to sexual sin in my own life was because of that. And as I worked with this priest, that was the work that was happening outside of confession. That was the grace. And I could receive, and then I could receive from the sacraments, both the Eucharist and reconciliation more fully. Some of you might, this might happen in your life. It might not happen until you're 30, like me. And that's okay. But God's on a journey with you because the Lord loves you. He loves you with an incomprehensible love, a love that you, can, you can't even imagine. And he wants to be with you. And he wants you to have freedom and life. And I've talked too much, but I just want you to know that you are loved by the Lord and that the Lord, sexual sin and any kind of sin is a reality. I don't have to tell you that, but the grace of the sacraments and the grace of the Holy Trinity and the grace of God is greater. And you might struggle with particular sins your whole life, but don't stop struggling. And don't stop keeping your eyes on the Lord who loves you. Because he does not see you by your sin. He doesn't say, oh, there's Jonathan. And okay, mortal, he's got five here. And venial, he's got five there. And this is what he struggled with in 2004. And this, he sees you as son, as daughter, as redeemed. And as one he wants to set free. God bless you. Mm -hmm.